Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials and special guests for a dynamic discussion on the most important political and legal topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. It's fitting that Donald Trump, whose wickedness and megalomania as president debased the legal and political systems of the entire country, has now become the nation's defendant. He faces serious legal jeopardy from multiple fronts, civil and criminal, state and federal, conduct before and during his presidency. Moreover, the cases arrayed against him are strong and getting stronger by the week. They come with near incontrovertible proof from audio and videotape, cooperating witnesses, and, not least, Trump's own words. Trump appears to understand that he has only one escape route, and even that a partial solution, to win the 2024 presidential election and then rely on the president's power and legal exceptions for sitting presidents to at least elude going to jail. And, somewhat incredibly, he is well on his way to receiving the Republican nomination with a lead among Republican candidates that increases with each indictment. One aspect of this high-stakes strategy is to avoid the formal condemnation of a felony conviction, especially one for the January 6th conduct, by pushing the trials to after November 2024. Conversely, the public interest weighs strongly in favor of a trial before the election so that American voters can know if the Republican candidate is a felon. All of which means that what would normally be a series of pedestrian administrative scheduling decisions has taken on national and even historical import. The trial dates to be set in Jack Smith's January 6th case in Washington, D.C. and Fonnie Willis's RICO case in Fulton County shape up as pivotal events in one of the most consequential elections in our history. Meanwhile, the outgrowths of Trump's poisonous rule play out weekly around the country. This week, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals upheld in part the invalidation of the FDA's 2000 approval of Mifepristone with an opinion by a MAGA judge that had scholars scratching their heads. To break down these bitter pitch battles that are seizing every level of our legal, social, and political lives, we welcome three of the country's most thoughtful and respected commentators. And they are Alexi McCammond, the opinion writer for the Washington Post for the last two weeks anyway. Before joining the Post, Alexi was a political journalist for Axios, a freelance political journalist for Cosmopolitan, and a news editor for the online magazine Bustle. In 2019, she was the recipient of the Emerging Journalist Award from the National Association of Black Journalists and was on 2020's Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Welcome back to Talking Feds, Alexi. Thank you. Carol Lennig, a reporter at the Washington Post, where she focuses on the White House and government accountability. She won the 2015 Pulitzer Prize for her work on security failures and misconduct inside the Secret Service and was part of a team that won it in 2014 for her look at the U.S. government surveillance through the disclosures of Edward Snowden. She's a three-time winner of the George Polk Award for Investigative Reporting and a pretty regular guest on Talking Feds. God bless her. Carol, thanks so much for returning. Glad to be here, Harry. And 
Norm Ornstein, a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. He's been studying politics, elections, and the U.S. Congress for more than four decades. A contributing editor for The Atlantic and co-host of the podcast Words Matter with Kavita Patel, which is a really intelligent and funny and sophisticated podcast. Check it out. He's also a prolific author, co-wrote the bestseller, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not-Yet-Deported Norm Ornstein. Thank you, as always, for your appearance on Talking Fed. Always a pleasure, Harry. Let's go to the Trump cluster F for felonies. The former president of the United States is now under indictment for 91 separate felonies in three different jurisdictions. That's 91 more than all presidents put together and several really, I'd say, ominous civil actions. So it's a certainty that the nomination contest ahead will coincide with a long season of Trump in different courts one way or another. So let's start with a few questions to, of what, to my mind, is the most important and righteous of the cases against him, the 1-6 federal prosecution on four counts growing out of his effort to steal the election. So last week, he countered the Department of Justice's suggestion to Tanya Chutkin of a trial date the government had proposed January 2nd with a proposal of April 2026. What is his thinking and how will it play with Judge Chutkin? You know, the Washington Post reported this morning, my good colleagues there, that there are many in Trump's circle, confidants, who are now kind of quietly admitting that the whole game plan for Donald Trump is to push this beyond the time that he might actually be the president again. So it won't really be the kind of threat to him that it is currently. In other words, that he thinks he could pardon himself, though that's not happened before, there's a legal path for doing it, or there's a reasonable legal path for doing it. 2026, who thinks that the Speedy Trial Act, which by my sights says that you should be tried 70 days from the time of arraignment, who thinks that complies in any way with that act? I mean, his schedule has, for all of 2025, three discovery conferences. That's all of 2025. But I I mean, I guess that's what I mean. Does he, he can't be in earnest or could he be? I mean, it really is, I think, a thumb in the nose to the judge. It's reminiscent of how in the post-election period, he didn't just win things. He won them by a landslide, you know, wanting to go to 2025. He did this extravagant, really nutty proposal But to what end, how's it going to play? He is, after all, in court as well as in the political um, arena. It's the Trump playbook, delay, deflect. He always loves to delay. The big picture problem, when I think about 2026, the Republican Party will be having all these Senate elections and, and gubernatorial elections that will continue through 2026. Their candidates will have to continue answering for Trump's legal perils. It'll keep Trump and the courtroom as these two foils going against each other. And the delay is detrimental to the party getting away from him at all, even if he loses in 2024, which then I think would just set them up for him to run again in 2028. Oh, my God. You're the first person who said that sentence. But yes, that's all true. But I mean, more fundamentally... This is not a serious proposal, right? This is a jerk-off proposal and to a judge who was, 
at least seemed to have limited patience for him in their first encounter or with his lawyers. Harry, I I think uh, he's met his match with Judge Chutkin. She's not going to take crap Mm -hmm. from him, at least not so much more crap. I don't think he can help himself from trying to intimidate and insult the judge, the prosecutors, the grand jurors, and almost everybody else involved from Georgia all the way up to Washington, D.C. At some point, she is going to call his bluff and put him in the pokey if he keeps doing this which is what any other defendant would already have found would take place, meaning there is a two-tiered system of justice. That's for sure, just the witness intimidation stuff, yeah. But the other thing we have to keep in mind is, however long it takes to do this trial, and it could be quite a while, one or two of them are going to have to take place in 2024 before the election. And he is facing, I think, a serious financial drain and a great difficulty getting enough lawyers who have even the minimal level of competence to be able to work with him. And no lawyer is going to go and say, I'll work with you, just send me the money later. They know his history. So he's going to have to come up with the cash. And already we're seeing that when Rudy Giuliani, who's now just about financially tapped out after having made tens of millions of dollars, begs for financial help, saying, I was the most loyal who could ever be to you. It's funny that it's taken him this long to learn that with Trump, loyalty is a one-way street. Trump is going to have those issues as well. And at some point, the party or some of these other billionaires are not going to be willing to pony up for him. He's got a world of hurt ahead, whatever happens with the timing of this trial. Yes, and that's certainly true on witness intimidation. But I want to stay with Judge Chutkin for a moment. Yeah, eventually push will come to shove. She is, I think, hard-nosed. She's also, I think, canny and doesn't want to, you know, be look like she's bossing around. Are we at this point? He's going to go in on the 28th, and she could certainly say, I've got one serious proposal, one joke. I'll go with the serious proposal. They, you know, if the DOJ says it, they have to be ready It seems to me, though, that this might be the occasion where she lets him go a little bit and sets a calendar on her own several months down the line. Is he hitting the real point of confrontation with Chutkin yet, or does she still give him running room? Any sense? I covered that court for a while, and the judges don't play, that's for sure, and and Chutkin's in that she has that reputation as well, a very serious person. She's displayed, you know, all of the correct sensibility about keeping politics out of her courtroom and trying her best to treat Donald Trump with the decorum he's expected, right? Because he's the former president, but also as a normal regular order defendant. I want to share with you guys and your viewers and listeners, Harry, what former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez said to me in an interview for Washington Post Live yesterday. He made this really compelling argument for why this trial needs to happen, as Norm suggested, in 2024. And he made the argument for Donald Trump and for the government and basically said, if you're Donald Trump, 
why don't you want to go to trial and prove your innocence now as you run for office and voters get to decide whether or not they trust and like you? If you are the defense, don't you want to show the public the evidence you have against him and the rights that he's afforded in a federal court of law, which are considerable? Being able to display that to our voters before they go to the polls seems like a pretty compelling argument, not only for this trial being held in 2024, but possibly for this trial to be the first one in that particular court's history to be televised. I so agree with the the timing point. If you're for Trump, against him, it's a little bit of a data point if he paid hush money to Stormy Daniels or something. But this is just down the middle, something the country deserves to know when they go to the polls. Let's move a little bit to the political arena. Norm, you say he'll be broke, but of course, with each indictment, if anyway, his numbers go up and he's got fundraising bonanzas. What is to be done? Because it's not Jack Smith's job to try to counter this. How should Democrats, say, manage the kind of perverse political boost that Trump is getting from the indictments? If I were a a Democratic strategist at this point, I wouldn't be too worried about that. I mean, first of all, we're already seeing some signs of cracks in the Republican structure over whether to continue to support Trump who they think will be a drag if he is nominated through all of this mess, and those who are going to stick with him no matter what, many of them because they're scared to death of his base. And the trials are going to play out. And what I would fear if I were a Democrat would be that the only trial uh, meaning that would take place is the one in New York, which is the weakest case and one that's not going to move any voters at all, I think. But seeing him tied down, knowing that it's also possible after Georgia, another state or two might come up with more indictments. After all, there were he was deeply implicated, it appears, in these false elector schemes in many other places. And I can imagine ambitious attorneys general and others in states doing that. And every one of them, it's like you've stepped into a little bit of quicksand and you're suddenly finding that you're moving further, further into that morass. And no matter what, it's got to be troubling and distracting to know that you've got six or seven or eight groups of lawyers who are constantly trying to both work with you and know that they're working for a client who is a nightmare for them. Because no matter what legal advice they give him, he's going on Truth Social and blowing all of that up. With one exception, actually. Interestingly, he was going to today have the big press conference with irrefutable evidence. And he and not only did he fold up, but he said, my lawyers told me I had to. And he did one other interesting thing. I don't know if you saw. He said, instead of any longer irrefutable evidence, he said, I believe irrefutable evidence. They've told him to try to distance himself from the kind of abject falsehoods of it. All right. One more thing about scheduling. Is there a sense in which, you know, there's just so much there that it kind of cuts in his favor, that it's all just one big cloud and mess and four cases, 91 counts? Conversely, is there a cumulative effect where at least reachable voters are able to say, man, that's a lot of smoke, there must be fire? What's the feeling vis-a-vis him, of just the profusion of cases and civil cases kind of everywhere. 
You know, I don't think any prosecutor right now on any of those now four teams isn't thinking about that exact question, isn't thinking, oh my goodness, don't we look like we are ladling on? And I don't think they're thinking so much about the jury being sympathetic to Donald Trump vis-a-vis all of this, but the way in which their own work will have the optical impression that they're all ganging up against him. And it all is all in the t- same cycle, right? I mean, August 1 was Jack Smith's bringing of the case for the effort to overturn the election. Fonnie Willis was two weeks later. I feel like it was maybe four weeks before that that Jack Smith brought the Mar-a-Lago case. And before that, of course, Alvin Bragg's case in New York, many, 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 many weeks before that. But they're all in 2023 in the span of what are we talking about? Four months. And I think my memory's right there. I'm not a political reporter, but I have covered prosecutors for a long time. They're very sensitive to this notion that they are putting a thumb on the scale of how the politics plays in our country. It is anathema to them and upsetting. And this really plays to Donald Trump's claim that, hey, they're all coming for me right as I'm the essential presumed nominee. And in coming for me, they're coming for you. And they're coming for you because they want to stop you, my supporters, from getting the president you deserve, the president you know will protect you and your culture and your values and your taxes and your land and your right to your guns and your ability to control your schools and your children, on and on and on. But the the real problem is that many of these cases, they could have been investigated a lot more thoroughly a lot sooner. One thing I think about is the real slice of the electorate that actually believes now that there is a two-tiered justice system. There's obviously been distrust in and disdain for Washington for a long time. The Hunter Biden situation is another data point that Republicans will use to continue to prop up not just the idea that there's a two-tiered system, but to back up their plans to basically burn the DOJ down and rebuild it in a way that is more favorable, uh, more equitable. And that's kind of scary because it's leading to these threats against these judges, as we've seen recently. But also, I was at lunch with some Republican strategists recently, and you know, spin is spin, but they were saying that they had a sense that there were more folks outside of just the Trump base who do believe that there's a two-tiered justice system, whether or not it started with Donald Trump and his legal perils. And I just am curious to know where that is going, because as these continue to, to move on and pile up, I think it reinforces that idea and just causes more fatigue. Yeah, I think it's a really good point. Two things could be true at once. You, I think the re- most recent polling suggests that 70% plus of Americans think, you know, he's done something. But I think a, a big chunk of them can hold the view of, but they're going after him too hard or, or you know, it's nevertheless for political reasons. And if you hold those two views, where you come out in terms of your presidential candidate is kind of unclear, right? That's where the Georgia case becomes more significant and the timing of that, because it will be televised. And there is a power in seeing this and seeing the evidence directly against Trump, most of which has been spun or not followed by people. If there's a televised trial involving Donald Trump, 
people who aren't paying a lot of attention to this and just the noise, including it's a two-tiered system and it's unfair, are going to tune in. It's going to be interesting and compelling. And if we get that trial, I think that will make a huge difference because that will tell a lot of people who might be on the fence, not so many of his core base, but the election is going to be decided by suburban voters, swing voters, that this guy really did do some bad things. It's complicated, as you know, better than any of us when you have 19 defendants. And uh, Fonnie Willis said, which has to be a misstatement and cannot happen, that they're all going to be tried together. That would turn it into a bizarre circus that would uh, have the opposite effect of what I'm talking about. And that's where, at least with what Jack Smith has done in Washington, one defendant, four core counts, that's pretty simple stuff. And my guess is that Jack Smith has had people turn already, that he has a lot of information, powerful stuff that we don't even know about. And then let's add one other element here, which is judges now asking for 33 years for some of the Proud Boys, deeply implicated with somebody who we know had regular communications with Trump, Roger Stone. This stuff could get much more perilous for Trump if these trials do move ahead before the election. Well, let me stick with Fulton County for a moment, because here's a a fact that hasn't generally come out. Yes, she's uh, very good at at Rico Fonnie Willis, but her most well-known trial previously of the Atlanta, the teaching uh, cheating scandal, 12 defendants. It started out bigger and it winnowed down, as presumably this will. Eight months, eight months to try. So I think there are a lot of things going on. I totally agree with you, by the way, Norm. You know, we'd be almost back to Watergate days, a given news cycle would have a three or four killer pieces of testimony replayed on there and then Trump scowling or whatever, you know, day after day after day and, and TV would be so, so strong there. We all remember the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial and something that was just so fascinating about that was the social media movement that came out of seemingly nowhere, all in support of Johnny Depp and totally against Amber Heard. And it just dominated Instagram and Twitter and especially TikTok. And I I wouldn't be surprised if something similar emerges, right, among the very online Trump supporters this time around. And that has a serious effect. As Norm was saying, a lot of folks who might not otherwise tune in will certainly tune in to watching it on TV. But a lot of people are getting this on their phones, getting these quick clips, and it could be totally skewed by whatever online movement may or may not emerge like we saw before. I mean, for God's sakes, people watch fictional trials on t- on TV and so can you the real thing with the former president but are you saying Alexi that that it's unpredictable how once filtered through 15 second hits how people will be reacting like a theme could just take hold yeah I think that's right and I think obviously younger people are on those platforms they're not the average cable news viewer and they are certainly voters too and I think that that could totally sway or maybe make people care more about this issue as a 2024 election issue than they might have otherwise. It's now time to take a moment for our sidebar feature in which we explain some of the issues and relationships that are prominent in the news. Today's sidebar is about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. 
a bill that aims to create a comprehensive approach to police conduct around the country. To explain the bill, we welcome Sarah Mearns. Sarah Mearns is a dancer at the New York City Ballet, where she has held the title of Principal Dancer since 2008. In 2018, Sarah was awarded the Bessie Award for Outstanding Performer, and in 2019, the Dance Magazine Award. Sarah recently made her debut as Juliet in Alexei Rodmansky's production of Romeo and Juliet with the National Ballet of Canada. Sarah also sits on the advisory board for the Dancers Resource at the Entertainment Fund, is a partner with the mental health organization Minding the Gap, and is a mental health champion ambassador at the Mental Health Coalition. I give you Sarah Mearns on the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. In June 2020, following George Floyd's death at the hands of police officers, then-Congresswoman Karen Bass introduced the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, a police reform bill that proposed extensive changes to U.S. policing. The bill has since passed in the House twice, first during the 116th Congress and then in the 117th. Both times, however, the bill failed to overcome partisan gridlock in the Senate. The bill aims to create a, quote, comprehensive approach to hold police accountable, unquote. Its provisions would, one, establish a national policing standard limiting the use of deadly force and banning chokeholds, carotid holds, and no-knock warrants at the local and state level. Two, limit the transfer of military-grade equipment among state and local law enforcement. Three, require police forces to maximize the use of body and dashboard cameras. Four, establish a standardized system of data collection on police encounters, including a nationwide police misconduct registry. Five, direct funding toward community-based policing programs responsive to local needs. Six, increase funding for federal oversight of police conduct and streamline federal law and prosecutorial efforts to respond effectively to excessive force, racial and religious profiling, and sexual abuse. The bill would amend federal criminal statutes to require a reckless, rather than willful, mental state for offending officers and would limit law enforcement's qualified immunity. Near-unanimous opposition from Republicans in the House and Senate have stymied the bill. A competing Republican-backed bill introduced by Senator Tim Scott in 2020 likewise failed, despite 2021 negotiating efforts of Scott, Bass, and Senator Cory Booker, in large part due to partisan disagreements over qualified immunity and a potential national police misconduct database. For Talking Feds, I'm Sarah Burns. Thank you so much, Sarah Mearns, for explaining the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Sarah is passionate about her partnership with Minding the Gap, an organization dedicated to supporting all dancers in finding the mental health support they need. You can find more information at wearemindingthegap.com. And now, a word from our sponsor the American Civil Liberties Union. Hello, I'm Sandra Park, a senior attorney with the ACLU Women's Rights Project. At the ACLU, we believe everyone deserves equal access to safe and stable housing. 
Fair housing is a civil rights issue because it's fundamental to creating a more just society. Where we live is not just an address. It's central to all of life's opportunities, what services, healthcare, jobs, schools, and transportation we can access, and where we can build community with our families. The ACLU is working to reduce mass evictions and barriers to housing opportunities that disproportionately impact Black women renters and their families and restore important housing protections to expand equal access to housing opportunities for everyone. To learn more about our efforts to ensure everyone has equal access to safe and stable housing, visit aclu.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate comes with a bit of a twist as we look to the very top of the wine bottle and ask which is better, cork or screw top? At face value, people think screw top equals cheap wine, which, as it turns out, isn't exactly true. The reason for screw tops is to ensure the wine tastes as the winemaker intended. Cork, which has been used to seal wine bottles for over 100 years, is a proven way to age wine effectively by allowing minute amounts of air to come in contact with the wine. This slowly develops a softer texture and enhances flavor. Now cork, traditional as it is, has a downside called TCA, which causes something called cork taint. Now cork taint, while affecting a very small percentage of wines, can be a big disappointment, causing a musty aroma similar to the smell of wet cardboard and contaminating a great bottle of wine. We turn back again to screw caps, which are cork taint proof, of course, not to mention much easier to open, especially in a kitchen surrounded by witnesses. How the aging process affects wines with a screw cap is yet to be known as wineries continue to test. Whether it's a cork or screw top, at Total Wine & More, our guides will help you find the perfect wine to match your tastes. After all, it's not just about what's on top of the bottle, it's what's inside that counts. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Okay, we don't have time to go, you know, per, well, nobody has time to go person by person. I just saw the 30 unindicted co-conspirators and go through them. But there's one, somebody I wanted to focus on a little, and Carol, you've written about Mark Meadows, and in particular, his joking about Trump's election claims. He's a very mysterious figure here, and he's now moving to transfer to federal court. I just wonder what you think is sort of up with him. He seemed to have skated free after the federal indictment didn't name him, but now, of course, he's flat out indicted. He's the guy who maybe knows the most and is maybe as culpable as anyone besides Trump and maybe Giuliani. How he's going to emerge many months from now, I think, is a fascinating and tricky question. I wonder if you have thoughts. I do. Um, <laughs> Great. So, <laughs> so when I was covering Mark Meadows as a yeah. member of Congress, and he changed a good bit as he became the, I mean, he's still a politician, ultimately, when he moved from leading the Freedom Caucus, being a really like a lightning 
rod for that group and a leader in that group to being the chief of staff for the president. He went into a, a place that I think is unenviable and unenviable in the sense that he had a boss with a lot of insane ideas that were illegal and inappropriate by any measure and even by the measure of the people all around him, by the measure of his White House counsel and his deputies, by the measure of his attorney general, by the measure of serious aides throughout the White House and, of course, Mark Meadows himself. And yet Mark Meadows had the job of making that boss feel important and validated. And oh, sure, we'll look into that about that fraud again that no one has evidence for. That was something Mark Meadows did day in and day out. He arranged the telephone call for Donald Trump to call Brad Raffensperger on January 2nd, in which basically the president tried to bully a public officer and illegally, as far as I can see from the evidence, illegally interfere in an election. Meadows was both an enabler and a sidecar who was always saying, well, to other people who were concerned about President Trump's behavior, this is nuts. I'm going to try to talk him out of this. And I'm paraphrasing, of course. And then saying to the president, we take you seriously, sir. We understand your concerns. But Basically, Meadows was part of this team hoping the plane would land and they'd all get out of it safely on January 20th and go to their respective homes and there would be a peaceful transfer of power. And that, I believe, although I can't say with absolute certainty, that is why I believe Jack Smith, in his very trimmed down, clean, knife-like indictment, doesn't toy with Mark Meadows, doesn't implicate Meadows in anything other than being that sidecar Rudy Giuliani was really the tool, the henchman who was pushing fake electors, who was pressuring state legislative leaders to do specific things. Being the, the sidecar and sidekick who sits with you like a courtier is different than being a tool. Now, in Fannie Willis's case, I appreciate how in her interview she emphasized over and over again that many of the acts she is describing are not crimes under Georgia law, but they are part of a series of essentially atmospherics of all of the ways in which people were trying to make this happen. And a jury may feel differently about Mark Meadows and whether or not he was engaged in two RICO acts as required to prove that he was engaged in a racketeering conspiracy. A jury may feel differently than Fonnie Willis does. It's a really good point that to me as a lawyer goes to the vaporousness of Rico, because you're right, he could be basically doing his job. How do you be a chief of staff to a madman? And yet, given the conspiracy that's been alleged, which is basically, you know, anyone who's pushing the ball forward on the crazy idea of getting him to uh, steal the electoral votes, they've got culpability under the theory, the very capacious theory of the Rico action. To take it from the other side. So he's the first guy to file a removal action. I'll be a lawyer for 30 seconds, which is if he's just doing his job and acting within the of his regular duties, he is able to go to federal court. And much, much more than that, people also haven't really figured this out. He may have immunity. He may have his fees paid for, etc. So it becomes a really important question for him personally. So does it feel to you that he's a courtier in an evil court, but he's basically doing chief of staffy stuff, the other way of putting it, that basically he's trying to foment a coup. If you put it that way, it doesn't sound very much like what a chief of staff's supposed to do. 
I will say, Harry, I'm not a Mark Meadows fan. Actually, it's That's an interesting clear. comparison with Mick Mulvaney, who was every bit as radical in his views on policy, maybe more so than Meadows. Of course, he left before all this mess, but managed, I think, to get a little bit of distance. And that was true of the other chiefs of staff. And I want to come back to not the Georgia situation, where it is a little more iffy, even though he's been charged there. But if you look at what he did on January 6th, even just looking at the texts with Jenny Thomas and others, Mark Meadows was up to his eyeballs in engineering or helping to facilitate what turned into the violent insurrection. Now, there's still some mystery about the plea deal. George Terwilliger, who's his lawyer, is as competent as any lawyer around. Whether they cut a deal and he turned on Trump involving the January 6th stuff, but then left out what happened in Georgia doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It's such a puzzler, right? Yeah, that he would cut that kind of deal. But I got to believe that the fact that Jack Smith has steered clear of Mark Meadows in this case is a reflection of a belief that he's getting something from Meadows in return. And if that's the case, the power of what Donald Trump is facing in the federal trial in Washington is much greater because nobody was closer to Trump physically. He knows everything from the sixth, right? He's the one who says... that he hears Trump say Pence should hang. Definitely, and leading up to January 6th. So that's very important. And it wouldn't surprise me that he gets separated from this. He may have a stronger claim than anybody else, certainly including Trump. And of course, with Trump, it's also actions that took place after he was president. Some of that's involved. But there's something else going on that's left Jack Smith believing that he could skate past indicting Mark Meadows, that would suggest that Trump's got uh, headaches there. Yeah, I want to stick with him a little bit longer. He's such an interesting figure to me. On the one hand, he seems like the very model of a terrible chief of staff. The chief of staff has to run things and say no and stand up and be consistent. But maybe that's a good defense. He was a lousy chief of staff, but what he was doing was just trying to temporize and, and, you know, manage all this traffic and in no way is, you know, advancing the ball. I mean, what should a chief of staff have been doing there just for Trump's sake? Boss, cut the crap and now. And he was the only one who was having access even. But maybe he was a feckless chief, the feckless chief of staff defense. There were very few people that said, what the heck, boss, to Donald Trump, right? I mean, and they had all left, you know, John Kelly, I mean, Bill Barr, the catch-up incident, you know, okay, you really want me gone because I cannot show you that there is any substantive fraud. I mean, that is why Barr basically got shown the door and he was happy to take it. He was so done. So it's an interesting time period where everybody who was willing to stand up to Donald Trump had basically gone. And a few of them were holding on by their fingernails because they were afraid of who would replace them. And I'm thinking, you know, of Mark Esper and how he at the Department of Defense tried his darndest to stay on because he was afraid of who else would be in charge and then put the military in the streets against the public. Or Pat Cipollone, who thought about leaving. And Mitch McConnell said, you know, I really hope you'll stay because you know, again, paraphrasing, God knows what will happen. He's going to be a devastating witness, right? Because in the January 6th committee, he wouldn't say what he told Trump, and now he has to. 
let's talk about some of the other nine uh, in the 19, not the ones who are the false electors or, you know, involved yeah. with some of the other shenanigans down in Georgia per se, but the other ones closer to Trump. They're facing five years or more if this goes through and they get convicted. And you could say that Fannie Willis has a strong enough RICO case, given her history in this, that they're in serious jeopardy. I got to believe that we're not going to end up with 19 at this trial or at a series of trials. Some of them are going to flip. I've also got to believe that some of the unindicted co-conspirators, that doesn't mean they won't be indicted, that some of them are getting nervous about this. And then I would just throw out, because I can't help myself, where is Ginny Thomas, who certainly ought to be at minimum an unindicted co-conspirator? Why was Cleta Mitchell, who was in on that phone call to Brad Raffensperger, who I have known for many, many years and who is evil, pure evil, why has she not been indicted or mentioned as an unindicted co-conspirator? Lynn Wood is another one. There are more shoes to drop here. The list goes on, and there's this very interesting dynamic. You mentioned his cheap stakeness with Giuliani. There's a few people out there. Jenna Ellis struck me the other day. She's got her own defense fund is up to like $15,000 or whatever. That'll pay for half a day of, of trial. But she's totally on the outs with the Trump team. That's the profile of someone who would cooperate. I want to take at least a few minutes to talk about this unbelievable dark cloud that's kind of over the cases and the country. Chutkin received a unbelievably vile, threatening, we're going to kill you kind of message. The grand jurors' names, which I can't believe Georgia law requires to be publicized, but in any event, when they were, there's been all this right-wing social media stuff totally threatening. And it's already totally alarming. They're, I'm sure they're all petrified, these grand jurors. But something could really, truly happen. And especially at the hands of a lone wolf, it is such a revolting challenge to the whole rule of law that people who do their duties are in real danger. I just wonder what you think about this aspect that seems to me is only going to get worse over the next year. Gene Robinson had a great opinion column for us at the Washington Post this week. I heard it was beautifully edited. <laughs> yeah, yes, because it takes zero editing because he's that good. Uh, that's the real secret. Um, it's the easiest day of editing when he's uh, your person. I say great, but it's obviously tragic. He he pulls together all of these different threats that black women and folks of color in particular have been facing from Trump's most racist supporters who are coming to his defense in light of these legal perils. He points out in the column, which I don't spend much time on Truth Social, but Trump has started using the term rigors, like election rigors, in all caps, just at the same time that these vile and racist attacks and threats are coming from his supporters. And Gene makes the great point that at the debate next week, these Republican primary opponents better have something to say about it. Otherwise, their silence is the same as joining in. And we've heard them parrot the same sort of talking points supporting Trump or continuing the idea that this kind of behavior might be justified because of that two-tiered justice system that they claim. But this is a different level. And to your point, Harry, it takes one time, one person doing something. I'm not even sure that that would change the tune for many folks. If 
you know, and all fingers and toes crossed, this doesn't happen. If something horrible happens to an election worker, election official, a juror, anything in that scheme, how will we be that surprised after January 6th? Or after, you know, a man slightly disturbed comes with a rifle to shoot up a pizza place in Northwest D.C. based on a completely falsified theory that was being promoted that Hillary Clinton and the Democratic Party were running an underground pedophilia ring there. This is a place where my children go for pizza, just so you know. How surprised will we be by this happening after FBI agents were targeted by people who had read some of the more vituperative rhetoric about the FBI coming for Donald Trump and thought they should take matters into their own hands. The dangers to public servants uh, are just through the roof. And from my mind, that they were the worst on the day of January 6th when Capitol Police officers really put their life between democracy and people with with pitchforks and bear spray and spears fashioned from poles. It feels like January 6th in a sense to me in that, you know, this asinine guy whips everyone into a frenzy and he can't control them anymore. He's unleashed these forces that are just on top of everything else, a terrible threat to the rule of law in the country. It's sick. On January 6th, don't forget that Trump insisted that people packing weapons would not have to go through metal detectors at the rally at the Ellipse. He was encouraging that violence, not to mention Mike Pence. Remember, he put up the address of Barack Obama and a deranged figure with multiple weapons went looking for the house. I live a stone's throw from there. That made me plenty nervous that day. Remember that Matt Gates has called for violence now. And it goes even beyond all of them. And the grand jurors, 4chan, putting their addresses out there and basically calling for violence against them. But I want to take this even to another level. Look at what Greg Abbott has done in Texas, putting up chainsaws, barbed wire, nets designed to drown people in the river. The level of sadism, and a lot of it is racist sadism, but it's broader than that, that has taken over the top levels of a political party that used to be in a very different place. It used to be a traditional party that railed against immoral acts, unethical behavior, would have been appalled at the idea of promoting violence. And that's now in the mainstream. You know, and of course, it's not just Matt Gates. Paul Gosar and others have done the same thing. It's a frightening thing that doesn't go away if and when Donald Trump goes away. And that's not a great place for this country to be. That's the thing. And it's just there's undeniably a racist strain and a sadism strain, a desire to, you know, see opponents knees broken or something. All right. We could go all Trump all the time, probably for the next year. But what do you say? There's like other issues playing out many of them driven by his own poison politics. But let's just take a minute or two to talk about something other than Trump. I wanted to get anyone's thoughts about the Fifth Circuit decision, the Mifepristone decision, that will now have to be decided by the Supreme Court. Thoughts about how abortion and reproductive rights are shaping the election season we're moving into. 
I mean, it's certainly going to be a huge issue, and it just drives young people to focus more on the Supreme Court, which is not something they've been used to doing in, in cycles, you know, until recently. There was a relative win recently among reproductive rights folks when OPIL, the now over-the-counter Plan B, was approved, and that took years of young people organizing across the country in state to state to figure out how to make this possible just to get access. We knew there would always be challenges to Mifepristone even after the initial Supreme Court ruling, but but it just shows that the pro-life movement isn't stopping after the Dobbs decision, right? That was certainly a big win for their side, but with it becoming a state's issue, they're certainly focused not just on those abortion restrictions that you mentioned, Harry, but on this other type of access to birth control or types of Plan B pills that they otherwise disagree with because they put it in the same category as having an abortion. The Fifth Circuit, this is not surprising. If there's anything surprising about it, it is that they didn't ban mefepristone entirely, although, of course, very few drugs have been through the rigorous process and multiple years of processes of that drug at the FDA. But, you know, Jim Ho issued a uh, partial dissent, which showed, I think, where jurisprudence on the right is going. And it basically said, I would have gone much further. I would have banned it entirely because of the trauma caused to doctors and having to treat. And then he talked about the beauty of the unborn child but not a word about the mother. (laughs) And the question is, since we know many states are going to go as far as they possibly can, and we've already seen horror story after horror story, we should also keep in mind that mefepristone is not just for abortion. It's used for many other purposes. My uh, friend and co-podcast host, Kavita Patel, says that it's created a huge problem in trying to deal with these other health issues for women. But look at what happened in Ohio. We're seeing that pundits who said, oh, this issue is just going to go away. It's not going away. And the question is, how many women are going to have to die? And I think we could see this as it played out in avoiding the red tsunami in 2022, that it could be still a motivating factor in 2024. The sad thing is that it will be a motivating factor because of the extreme policies that are killing people. I have a question about that, which is, I hear you loud and clear, Norm, and I wonder if it's such a tsunami, if it's such a grave level of concern, where were those women and their partners as voters? Why were they not kind of taking to the streets after Dobbs, rolling back this kind of protection that had been presumed a right where was the anger level? And, and maybe for you too, Alexi, what, what do you think is going on? It's a great question. And I, I actually love that you brought that up because I remember thinking they're gonna, it's going to be the Women's March all over again. And I remember Elizabeth Warren standing outside of the Supreme Court, and that was sort of like the closest we got to this sort of rally type of protest. It could be partially fatigue. It could be partially shock. Obviously, when the decision, the draft decision was leaked, 
and then the actual decision happened, there was time for folks to close the what people call believability gap, which is, you know, there's a fear that this constitutional right could be taken away, but it's not actually going to happen. That certainly was closed, I think, for a lot of folks in those three months. I think it was three months between the leak and the decision. I just think that folks are actually becoming a lot more sophisticated. They're learning about these ballot initiatives. They're learning about their state constitutions. And I think they're putting their energy into organizing around those initiatives rather than sort of throwing this anger into the void, into the streets that's not always reflected even by the leaders of their preferred party. Mm. All right. We only have one minute left for our final feature of Talking Five in which we take a question from a listener that each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. And today's question is, what is in Trump's Twitter DMs? We know that Twitter fought tooth and nail to keep them from being revealed and only produced them after being held in contempt. So what's in these Twitter DMs? Anyone? Perhaps more obstruction? Riyadh, question mark, Moscow, question mark, south of France, question mark. I'm going to go with, I don't want to know. (laughs) The best. And I'll go with, get me out of here. Thank you so much to Alexi, Carol, and Norm. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post full episodes, talking books, and bonus video content. You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we are publishing bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This past week, we posted a conversation with Natan Sachs, the director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution, about the ongoing impacts within Israel of Netanyahu's proposals to overhaul the judiciary. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and are inclined to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether they're for Talking Five or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in, and don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Mal Meliez, associate produced by Catherine Devine, sound engineering by Matt McArdle, Our research producer is Zeke Reed. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistants by Meredith McCabe, Akshaj Turbailu, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Dolito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.